If you were with us last time, you will know that we said some things concerning the book of Numbers when we gave an overview of the book. We talked about the fact that in Numbers there is a particular character that applies to the book, except for the 15 months that they spent at Sinai. This book tells us everything that is known about the people of Israel in their wilderness journeyings for almost 40 years. The tabernacle was the rallying point for God's people. And the names that are given in chapter 33 of this book are probably those of the various stations of the tabernacle during the years of their wandering. Because the tabernacle went everywhere that they went, they went everywhere that the tabernacle went. There's a blending of history and legislation in this book, but it largely gives to us an experience of an unbelieving people. It's telling us about the consequences of unbelief, the failure of God's people to be a different people, as they were called to be, and their failure to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. That's really the character of the book. We talk about the contents of Numbers. There are two great census takings that are mentioned in chapter 1 and chapter 26. Two times when they took the sum or the number of the people, hence the name Numbers. They were numbered in chapter 1 and again in chapter 26. The first muster of people was of that generation that came out of Egypt. And you have the story of those people from chapter 1 to chapter 25. And the whole thing ends in disaster. Then the second great organization of the people, it consisted of the new generation. All those that were born in the wilderness, apart from two men, Joshua and Caleb. They were the two old geezers, you might say, in the midst of all these young people. They were the survivors of that generation that wandered in the wilderness. When you look at the book and see the contents of it, you will realize that it consists of three things, really. Organization, preparation for their advance into Canaan. Disorganization, which was really a check to their advance because of their unbelief. They could not enter the land And then reorganization. There was a renewal of that advance that should have taken place almost 40 years earlier. And so again at Kadesh, there is this new census, new experiences, new laws for the people as they're about to enter into Canaan. And then we talk about the comparisons in numbers, the typology. I don't want to go over all that ground again, but you will know that we talked about one particular type of Christ, mentioning seven altogether, but one in particular we focused on, which was the brass serpent. We talk about that time when the people were being bitten by snakes, and the Lord sent these fiery serpents among them. But as Moses prayed for God's mercy, God told him, make a fiery serpent, a serpent of brass, put it on a pole, set it up in the middle of the camp, And anybody who gets bitten by a snake, as soon as he looks to that serpent on the pole, he will be healed. 
And the Lord Jesus said that that was a type of himself. Because as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, Jesus, be lifted up. That's the cross. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So there's a wonderful type of Christ in that, as well as the law of the Nazarite, the red heifer, the bread from heaven, the water, the star, and the cities of refuge. But today I want us to go further, and I want us to look at what I would call the concentration of numbers. What the book concentrates chiefly upon by way of its message. See, this book actually speaks of the daily walk of the Israelites with their God, but it teaches us a great lesson, which is the need that we have to obey the Lord and to serve Him faithfully. The book of Numbers relates the constant sinfulness, the failures, the murmurings and complainings, the jealousy and the unbelief of God's people in their wilderness wanderings. And in that way, it actually mirrors the experience of all Christians in all ages. Because the fact of the matter is that we are often guilty of the same things. We sin against the Lord. We shouldn't, but we do. We fail. We mess up, you might say. And we murmur and we complain when we shouldn't. And oftentimes we're guilty of unbelief in our wilderness journeying. And we don't trust the Lord as we should. And we doubt the Lord and His faithfulness. So the book of Numbers really has numerous spiritual parallels for the benefit of Christians in our day. The message that Numbers concentrates upon is twofold. The main thoughts in the book are, number one, human failure. And number two, divine faithfulness. Now that's easy to remember. Human failure, God's faithfulness. Now I said before when we studied Leviticus that we should really, along with Leviticus, have in our other hand the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. They're books that belong together. To study Leviticus and you study Hebrews with it, it's very helpful. Because it will actually open up some things in Leviticus that would not otherwise mean a great deal to you. But Leviticus and Hebrews should be studied together basically for doctrine, for teaching. Numbers and Hebrews should also be studied together. Not necessarily just for doctrine, but for duty. So remember this, Leviticus with Hebrews for doctrine. Numbers with Hebrews for duty. In other words, to see how it is that we're supposed to behave as Christians. We learn this as much by the failures and mistakes of Israel as anything else. We should learn from our mistakes. The people of Israel took a long time to learn from their mistakes. But as we look at what Numbers concentrates upon, the first thing we see is God's purpose. Now what was God's purpose? Well it's clearly outlined in the book. The people of Israel were to go immediately to Canaan. They were only about two weeks journey from that land. In fact, it probably wouldn't even have taken 14 days. But they didn't go in 14 days. 
It took them about 38 years and 10 months before they were on the edge of the promised land. Because they just kept wandering and going round in circles. Do you ever get that feeling that that's what you're doing? Well, that's what they were doing. They were moving and moving and moving, but getting nowhere. They were going nowhere. And it was their own fault. It wasn't God's fault. God's purpose was that they would go at once to the promised land. Now, when you think about Canaan, and Canaan is the land of promise, it's often taken by Christians and preachers to represent heaven. And that's one aspect of it that we can certainly apply it to. We can say, yes, heaven is Canaan's land. Uh, There are some Negro spirituals to that effect. I'm going to go over into Canaan land, is one famous song. And we have songs in our book, our hymnal, that speak to this, where we're standing on the edge of Canaan, and Canaan representing heaven, the land of milk and honey, the land of plenty. That's how it's applied. And we often speak of heaven as Canaan land. But here's the interesting thing. The land of Canaan actually was a place where God's people encountered enemies and fought battles. When you read the book of Joshua, you'll see that it's all about entering into the land of Canaan. One of the first places they came to was Jericho. What happened at Jericho? Well, they were up against it. These high walls and these enemies facing them. The Lord brought those walls down and they didn't fall like this. They fell like this. The earth opened up and the walls went down in. You know how you know that? Because Rahab's house was built on the wall. And whenever the walls fell, her house didn't fall. Her house was standing, but it was the only one standing. Everything else was underneath the ground. You study it carefully, it actually talks about this, especially in the original, that the walls fell under it. That's why they didn't have to clamber over rubble to get into Jericho. It was just a flat surface. They just went straight in and took over the city. But they faced enemies there. And as they went further on, they faced enemies. They came to a little place called Ai, spelled A-I. Some people say A-I just to differentiate it, but it's actually pronounced I. And they presumed that they could overcome that city easily. Ah, Easy peasy. That'll be no problem to us. We'll overcome that city in no time. It's just a small place. Well, guess what happened? They were chased. They lost a lot of men. They lost that battle. And the reason? Because there was a man called Achan who hid in his tent that which God had forbidden to be taken. He kept back gold and clothing and things that they were not supposed to take as spoil to themselves. And the Lord said, there's sin in the camp. And because there's sin in the camp, you will not prevail until that sin is dealt with. And of course, Achan and his family were stoned to death. And they raised up a pile of stones above where they died. And then they went to the city of Ai and overcame it. And there were various other battles. 
So what I'm saying is the land of Canaan was a place of fighting and a place of conflict. That's not heaven. When we get to heaven, there'll be no conflict. There'll be no fights. We won't have to overcome any enemies. Sin itself will be done away with permanently. We've been delivered from the consequences of our sins. We've been delivered from the power of our sins. When we get to heaven, we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. There's going to be no conflict in that particular Canaan. So, in that sense, Canaan, the land of promise, might be more appropriately thought of as representing great and, and mighty spiritual blessing. Rather than just taking it to represent heaven, we might take it to represent a fullness of blessing in Christ. And in that respect, it would be good to read the book of Ephesians, which speaks of those things. But as well as Numbers talking about God's power, there's a concentration in this book on God's requirement. What God demands. And what does God demand? Well, he demands full trust. And he demands obedience. We often sing that hymn, Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that's it. Faith is trust. Obedience, serving the Lord faithfully. This is God's requirement even of us today. It was his requirement of the people of Israel. Believe me, trust me, and obey me. Do my will, keep my laws. These were all that he demanded. Full trust and obedience. That's God's requirement even for us. Of course, the book also speaks of God's provision. And how wonderful this is. We haven't got time to read all these 30-some chapters and how it speaks of God's provision. But you'll know that there was a provision made by God of sacrifice. Sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice that ultimately speaks of Christ, that speaks of His atoning work. One of those elements was the red heifer. But there are other examples of sacrifice. You also have the priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, the the Levitical priests, and the great high priest, Aaron himself, who represents the Lord Jesus Christ in type. You have then this phenomena of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. An amazing thing, where that during the day they would look and see this pillar that was composed of a dark cloud. But when it came to night time, it wasn't a cloud anymore, it was fire. So that it would lead them the way and give them light to show them where they were going. You ever stop to think about that? What an amazing thing that must have been for the children of Israel to witness. You're traveling along and there's this big cloud that's just going in front of you the whole time, above the tabernacle, this cloud. And then it gets dark and the cloud turns to fire. And they're following after this fiery pillar. It's God's glory. And it's a wonderful thing to study as well, the Shekinah glory of God. God provided them also with a leader. 
Moses. Ultimately then, when Moses was gone, Joshua. And every time there is a Moses who dies, there is a Joshua who takes over. Then there's God's provision of food, the manna from heaven. Think about that. Every single morning, they got up, and along with the dew that fell on the ground, there was this light, kind of a bread-like substance. And they were able to take that and put it into a pestle and mortar and grind it and put it in pans and fry it or cook it in an oven and eat it. Every single day that happened. Except for the Sabbath. It never fell on the Sabbath. So what happened? On the sixth day, they would gather two days worth of manna for that day and for the Sabbath so they wouldn't have to go out and gather it. And anybody who thought, well, you know what, I'm just going to go out and Sabbath and gather it anyway, there were consequences for that. Because they were not obeying God and they were not trusting God. But God provided that food, manna in the wilderness, for almost 40 years. Every day. And again, he provided them with flesh, quails, because <clears throat> they wanted flesh. So we're tired of this manna. We're fed up eating that same old bread every day. Okay, I'll give you flesh to eat. And even as they were eating it, it made them sick. Be careful what you wish for. Sometimes you want something that you think is better than what God is giving you. And the Lord sends meat. But he sends also leanness into your soul. And that's how that's described in the book of Psalms. He gave them meat in their lust, but he sent leanness into their soul. Be careful what you wish for. You think that God's provision for you is not enough, or it's not what you really need? The Lord will teach you that it is. And of course there was also, as well as this, sacrifice, a priesthood, the pillar of cloud and fire, a leader, food. There was also protection from God that was ample for all of their needs. Think of them traveling through the wilderness. The wilderness had within it wild animals. You go into any forested area, even in this country, some of the mountainous regions out west, and it's full of grizzly bears and mountain lions and other critters that are quite dangerous. If you get between them and their cubs especially, or you get between them and their food, you're in trouble. Very dangerous. It was dangerous in the wilderness. There were snakes there. Obviously, the Lord even sent some of them to bite the people at one time as a judgment. But this was a very dangerous place, the wilderness. And yet the Lord protected them all the way through. And something interesting is said about the people of Israel as they traveled through. Even the shoes on their feet never wore out. Would have been a terrible thing to be a Jewish shoemaker. Because you wouldn't make any money during those 40 years. Because their shoes didn't wear out and their clothes didn't wax old. Wouldn't that be great? Some of you ladies, your favorite clothing would never wear out. You'd never have to replace it. This is what God did for them. He protected his people and provided everything that was ample for their needs. 
And yet we come to this fourth thing, and that is God's disappointment. God was grieved by their fear, but he also was grieved by their foolish complaining. The people of Israel really, we could put it that way, disappointed the Lord. And the reason they did that is that they depended on themselves instead of on the Lord. Look at chapter 13 of Numbers. We read from verse 26. And it's talking about those that had come back after searching the the promised land for 40 days. Verse 26 says, And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us and surely it floweth with milk and honey and this is the fruit of it. They're talking about the land of Canaan, the land of promise. Nevertheless, The people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. Now, who were the children of Anak? They were giants. They were big, big people. Giants. And they were scary people. And this is what they got their focus upon. They said, look, the people be strong. Verse 28. The cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. So they could see all the problems. They could see all the difficulties. They could see all the enemies. That's all they saw. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which some which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now look at the first verse of the next chapter. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. These men came up with an evil report. And as a result of that, the children of Israel were spooked. They were scared. They believed this evil report. They didn't listen to Caleb and even to Joshua. And as a result of that, they began to complain against the Lord. Let me just stop there and speak of this. Because within the book of Numbers, there are three great rebellions that are recorded. And here is the source of God's disappointment that we're focusing on right now. 
Because of what happened in the wilderness, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Lord dealt with the people. Look at what happened. Paul warns these Corinthians that God overthrew many Israelites in the wilderness because of, among other things, their evil desire for the food of Egypt. See that verse that we read earlier in our Bible reading? We remember Egypt, the onions and the leeks and the garlic and all the stuff that we had there. What have we got here? This light bread. They were complaining and murmuring. And God said, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Well, verse 5 says, With many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So the Lord means to teach us by what happened there with the children of Israel. That we're not to be like that. We're not to do as they did. What did they do? Well, let's refresh our memories. Numbers chapter 11 and verse 4. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. We're fed up with this that God's giving us. We want to have what we had in the old days when we were in Egypt. That's a terrible place for a Christian to come to. Where he starts to think it was better in the days when I wasn't saved. I had a better life. I had a better experience before I became a Christian. Really? That's how they were talking. Not only was there this evil desire for the food of Egypt, but there was also their immorality with the Midianites. God mentioned that in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 8. Notice what it says there. How that they... Well, the lesson is neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. 23,000 of them were cut off because of immorality. Where do we read that? Numbers chapter 25 and verse 11. Here's the history. Where it says in verse 9, Those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. The context is of them committing adultery. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, God says, hath turned away my wrath from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. What did Phinehas do? He found one of the children of Israel with a Midianitish woman in the tent and he rose up from the congregation with a javelin in his hand and he went into the tent and he thrust them both through with that javelin. And as a result of that, verse 8, the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. When sin was dealt with, the plague disappeared. And of course, in what is an even more striking parallel, the writer of Hebrews warns professing believers in Christ that although the entire nation came out of Egypt, 
God refused entry into the promised land, into the rest of that land, because of their unbelief. And we can read the history of that in Numbers chapter 14. We'll not take time to do that now, but it is interesting when you look at these New Testament portions. 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews chapter 3, that the relevance of what happened in Numbers clearly applies to Christians today. The lessons from Numbers are meant to be learned by us from what happened there. That can't be denied. But the lesson for the Christian is more than just a lesson in morality. It also has profound theological implications. Because you think about the three rebellions that I just mentioned, complaining about the lack of meat, Numbers chapter 11. Their refusal to enter the land of promise, Numbers 14. And they're committing fornication with the Midianites in Numbers 25. They all involve a profound spiritual departure that was tantamount to a denial of Israel's distinct identity as a people. They were giving the lie to the mission that God had given to them. They were meant to be a different people. They were meant to be a holy people. They were meant to be a distinct people. And herein lies the application for us from the book of Numbers. The book is fundamentally about the Lord's leadership of his people. Of course, that was a theocracy. In other words, the people were directly under the leadership of God, even though he gave them earthly leaders. But all this that God established was to make sure that Israel preserved its status as a priestly nation and as a holy people. They were a distinct people from all the other nations. They were not like the nations round about, who were filled with immorality, filled with wickedness. They were to be a different people. We learned that in the book of Leviticus. But the major characteristic of the priestly mediators in Israel, including the nation itself, was their sanctification unto God so that they might sanctify God in the eyes of other people. They were to have God alone as their God and follow Him so that others might witness that and take note of that and realize that they were a different people because they were God's people. That's what it's all about. So the Lord calls them to be distinct so that they can maintain a testimony of the distinctiveness of God Himself. You think about this, that the Lord actually separated the Levites as a priestly tribe from within the nation of Israel. And just as he separated the house of Aaron as a priestly house, so he chose the nation of Israel as a whole from among the other nations to be what he called in Exodus 19 verse 6, a kingdom of priests. Apply that to the New Testament. We've already made this application when studying Leviticus. In Revelation 1.6, it's actually alluding to Exodus 19, verse 6, where it calls God's redeemed people kings and priests unto God. 
We don't have a priestly class today. All believers are priests who offer not literal sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices, prayer and praise and worship. And Peter emphasizes that parallel as well in his epistle. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that in order that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Remember how we studied what Peter said, quoting from Leviticus, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So when you look at the book of Numbers, the failure of Israel is more than just a lesson to us of a moral kind. But it's actually at the very heart of what the believer's relationship with God should be and what the mission of believers is in this world to be a different people that others might see it and take knowledge of it and relate the whole thing to God see I don't want people to think I'm a great guy or you shouldn't want them to think that you're a great person you want them to think that Jesus is great that's what you want them to do why are you the way you are See what the Lord has done for me. That's what it's all about. That's what we should be reflecting. And I have said that Israel were guilty of complaining against the Lord. And really that's the first thing in the three rebellions. If I could just very quickly mention this. The first problem that they had was ingratitude. Their complaints about the manna. We read about it in chapter 11 from verse 4. You can read on down to verse 35. Here they are, set apart by God. But they show a great ingratitude to the Lord. Several of Israel's complaints about their conditions in the wilderness really are a repudiation of God's choice of them to be a nation called out from other nations. They were rebelling against that. Notice what they said when they were fed up eating the manna. We we liked it better when we were in Egypt. Really? You liked it better in Egypt? You remember what happened when you were in Egypt? Remember how you were working under taskmasters? Remember how you were kept as slaves in Egypt? Oh, you're thinking about the leeks and the garlic and the onions and the fish. Remember how you were under hard taskmasters and the people were made to build things out of bricks made with straw and mud. And then they withheld the materials from you. So you had to go gather your own to make the bricks. You were under terrible bondage. Remember what happened when you were under that bondage? You were complaining. You were murmuring. You forgot all that. So it is for believers who think, remember the way it was before I got saved? Life was so much better. Really? It was? Really? You'd rather go back to that time? Some people who were held in chains of habits and things that they couldn't get rid of. Miserable. Getting wasted every weekend. And then doing the same thing next weekend. And then doing the same thing the following weekend. 
I used to work with guys in secular employment who when we arrived in on a Monday morning already had their wages spent from the week that was supposed to last through that week. In fact, they had it spent before they got the wages. They used to borrow money from their friends. Why? Because they were drinking and gambling. And some of them were just about destitute and working My dad used to say, even a two-minute silence it would work to get some money. And there were people who are now saved. That's the way it used to be for them. Before the Lord reached down in mercy and saved them. Really? You'd want to go back? You'd want to go back to that? I'm not saying that everybody who's not saved, that's the way that they live. But some people do. How could it be better the way it was before? Yes, we have trials. Yes, we have troubles. Yes, we have difficulties. Yes, some days are hard. Some days you'd rather stay in bed as to get up because of what you're going to face. But we have the Lord, don't we? He walks with me. And He talks with me. And He tells me I am His own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Many a time when I was a little kid and I was really upset about something, my dad used to pat me in the head and say, It'll be alright, son. It'll be alright, son. And in an infinitely greater way, that's what God does with his children. It'll be alright. Because I'm in control of it all. I'm in control of it. And all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Let us not be filled with ingratitude. Let us not murmur as they did. There's a song. Grumble on a Monday. Grumble on a Tuesday. Grumble on a Wednesday too. Grumble on a Thursday. Grumble on a Friday. Grumble the whole week through. The song is called The Grumblers. People like that, you know. That should not be a characteristic of God's people. We have so much to be thankful for. So much to be thankful for. But the Lord was grieved with these people. And the whole story is given there in Numbers chapter 11. They were grie- the Lord was grieved because they were not happy with their lot. And the complaining of Israel that has been pointed out was a denial of their special status as a priestly nation. But you'll notice that the grumbling is referred to in the context of a group of people called the mixed multitude. Look at this. Numbers chapter 11 verse 4. It says... And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Now, let's think about this. The mixed multitude. Who were they? They were the non-Israelite element among them. They were not true Israelites. That's why they're called a mixed multitude. 
The actual word that's translated mixed multitude doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament. You don't find this anywhere in your Old Testament. And in this place, that Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it uses a Greek word that also refers to different nationalities in the midst of Israel. It uses that word in Exodus 12.38 and Nehemiah 13.3. But in the present context here in Numbers 11, the mixed multitude clearly includes non-Israelites. Since in the next phrase, the text indicates that the children of Israel also wept. So they're distinct from the mixed multitude. In other words, the sons of Israel took up the complaint of this mixed multitude. And that's the way complaining always works. Somebody starts it and then other people jump on the bandwagon. They start complaining as well. In this case, it was the mixed multitude. Not the faithful people of God. The mixed groupings. They were not just Israelites. But the Israelites took up their complaint. You could say... The rebellion started with the aliens and spread to the Israelites. And that's important for us to note because it notes the reversal of God's prescribed order of influence. The children of Israel were supposed to be influencing the mixed multitude. We as believers are supposed to have an influence upon the world around us, not the other way around. Get on top of a table sometime and have somebody to stand on the floor you try to lift that person up on the table while they're trying to pull you onto the floor. Who wins? I'll tell you who will win. The person who's standing down on the floor. You'll never lift them up onto the table, but they'll pull you down. This is what often happens. And Christians would do well to think about this. Instead of being a light to the nations, sometimes... By our complaining, we're giving in to the spiritual darkness. We're allowing the world to dictate the terms and to set the agenda. Now what were the implications of Israel's murmuring? We would do well to think about that. Here's a discontented, bitter spirit that can sometimes develop among God's people. You know what it does? Not only does it kill your own joy as a believer, but it does tremendous damage to your testimony before the ungodly. Ingratitude. Another thing I must mention, and I haven't got time to develop it, is insubordination. Refusal to enter Canaan. When we were children, we used to sing in our Sunday school, 12 men went to spy in Canaan, 10 were bad, 2 were good. And the song goes on to speak of the fact that there were two that brought up a good report and ten who brought up an evil report. Oh, we can't enter that land. There's too many problems. Look at the walls on the cities. Look at the giants. Have you seen the people there? We'll never be able to overcome it. And Caleb and Joshua said, no, we're well able, we're well able to overcome it because we have the Lord with us. But there was insubordination from the people. They rebelled against God's order. They did not wage war as they should have done against those other nations. 
And they said it would have been better for us to remain and to return into Egypt. In fact, at one point, they actually went further and they said, let us make us a captain that he may help us to return into Egypt. They wanted to go back. And that's what the devil wants you to do if you're a true Christian. He wants you to go back. He spends all his energy in causing you to go back. Not to go forward, to go back. I was speaking with someone recently and I said, everything in this world, everything in this world is set up to militate against godliness. It is. I don't care what it is. The movie industry, Sunday opening of stores, all the stuff that goes on in this world, it's designed to take you away from God. That's what it's all about. The hymn writer had it right. Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? The answer to that is obvious. No, it is not. God wants His people to be different. He wants His people to be involved in the battle and to do His will. But the problem is that there was mutiny among the children of Israel. And that mutiny that took place among the Israelites should be a warning to God's people today who don't want to be involved in spiritual battle. You know, there are churches like that. They don't want to be involved in any battle or any conflict. Don't want any controversy. We just want to all be nice. We just want to be nice to everybody. You see, there are signs outside. Jesus welcomes all and so do we. You know what they mean by that, don't you? They're not saying, no, come with your sin and leave without your sin. They're saying, come with your sin and it's all right. We're not going to say anything about it. You want to live a sodomite life? Don't worry about it. Just, you're welcome here. Come here. We're accepting of everybody. We affirm We affirm your lifestyle. That's what's going on today. There are churches up in New England. Not just there, but especially in New England. And outside on their church sign, they have underneath the rainbow symbol, the rainbow flag. We are an affirming church. In other words, we're a sodomite church. Does it matter what the Bible? What's in the Bible? Who, who's concerned about the Bible? We all just want to get along. We want to be nice. This is what was happening in Israel. We, just want, we want to be like the nations around about. We want to be like them. That's what drove the desire to have a king eventually. Remember that? Make us a king so that we can be like all the other nations around about. We don't want to be different. People think we're old fogies. People think we're square. We've got horns. No, 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 no. No, we want to be accepted by everybody so they'll all think we're great. This is the lesson. Ingratitude, insubordination, disobedience to God's commands, and of course immorality goes with it. This was the awful thing that happened in Israel. Not only did they complain about the food... Not only did they rebel against what God told them to fight with the enemies round about, but they also got involved 
at Baal Peor in immorality, wickedness, and idolatry always goes together with immorality. You just check out those religions and nations where idolatry prevailed, immorality also prevailed. It happened here. And by yielding to the influence of the Midianites, the temptation that was there, Israel was threatened with the loss of its identity, its distinctiveness. And consequently, the reason for its existence as a holy nation unto God. If we're going to be just like the world round about us, there's no point in having a church. That's the point. There's no point in saying that you're going to be a Christian if you're going to be just like the world in every respect. Because worldly Christianity is actually a misnomer. It's a contradiction in terms. The Lord has called us to be a different people. One verse that really crystallizes this with which I will close is James chapter 4 verse 4 in the New Testament. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. God's disappointment, God's chastisement, they were kept from blessing for over 38 years. We can think about God's forbearance. Thank the Lord he didn't leave them because he remembered his covenant. But we can also think of God's call at the present. And if you were to study the book of Hebrews, you would see that there's a five-fold warning. A warning against drifting in chapter 2. A warning against disbelieving, chapter 3 to chapter 4. A warning against degenerating, chapter 5 to chapter 6. A warning against despising, chapter 10. And a warning against departing from the living God, chapter 12. So the key word of the book of Numbers is unbelief. And that can be seen in its counterpart spiritually in Hebrews. In Numbers, the people drew back. In Hebrews, we see the spiritual result. They drew back unto perdition. May the Lord help us to learn the lessons that we need to learn from portions of Scripture like the book of Numbers. May he bless his word to all of our hearts. Amen.